listening knows I don't do deep academic dives into subjects that we all care about in matters of fixing healthcare, nor am I a journalist. But today's guest is a respected, award-winning deep dive economist and a master educator, first with a national journalistic platform in the land down under, land of Crocodile Dundee. Okay, I'm going to set her up now. So first, let's take this out at a 20,000-foot view. Ask any life insurance actuary, and they will max out a human life value at 15 to 20 times earnings. So let me give you a few examples. And they may give you 20 years at that 50,000 and say, you can buy a million dollars of life insurance, 20 times 50, okay? If you're 40 and you're making 100,000, they may say, we're gonna give you that 100,000 for 15 years. So that's a million five in life insurance will sell you, okay? Because that's the human life value in their opinion. It's more complicated than that, but I'm, I'm giving you an idea. If you're 60 years old and you're making 300,000, they may say, we're going to give you 10 years of human life value. So we're going to give you 10 times 300 or $3 million. So that gives you an idea how life insurance actuaries, you know, of course, oversimplified, look at human life value. Now, let's talk about personal entry attorneys because they deal with it every day, especially for wrongful death. They regularly will settle a wrongful death lawsuit in the $1 to $4 million range. You just heard me give you three numbers. That's $1 to $4 million range. But what is the human life value lawsuit? If he's the head of Goldman Sachs that got killed, right? That's not one to four million. What if it's Tom Hanks or Tom Brady? That's a lot more than one to four million because they have a lot higher human life value because their earnings are much higher. It's not only a function of age and earning potential, but not in a second, and your earning history. So we all have a real mathematical life value to juries, judges, and actuaries. It's science, it's heartless, it's math, it's data because they are heartless. A newborn from a Rhodes Scholar that was just born as I speak, and she's a Rhodes Scholar mom and the dad's a Fulbright Scholar, they have a human life value for their child that's dramatically higher than the woman cleaning their house if that child is brimming with the potential and becomes a Sotomayor. She becomes Sonia Sotomayor or LeBron James. And you may not like hearing this, but that child doesn't have the same human life value as the other child. This is data. This is not my opinion. Economists, like our guests today, are all about data. Economics is a science. This becomes important because what is the cost of lockdowns in human life value? We've costed ourselves an estimated $16 trillion to lose 666000 as of today's count. So we're in mid-September right now. Or that's $25 million per life. Not one to four million, that it's worth $25 million. So to say it another way, would you invest twenty-five? dollars in your business to save a dollar or to save four dollars that's what we're talking about how are they come up with this crazy 16 trillion dollar number it's not easy let's talk about 50 year and socialization there's a long-term cost to this per kiddo in earnings and happiness it's measurable math and data again when you discount that long-term cost to its present value today so what missing school or socialization costs this is math it's actually Eco 102. You don't learn it the first year. You may learn it the second year. Another cost easier to understand for all of us is those of us who have gotten hammered. My company's nowhere near the size it was two years ago. Entrepreneurs have gotten hammered these past 18 months. Independent retailers, pub owners, and restaurateurs are the obvious ones. And those listening who are doctors that are independents, you get it. And hoteliers and landlords and entrepreneurs generally have lost life savings or have gone into deep PPP debt or been forced to sell at steep discounts at a rate of sales and medicine like we've not seen before. It's almost like a 5x on what normal sales go for of medical practices. So we've seen a quintupling there. Or if you're any entrepreneur and you've had to close your shop, you have a much larger deepened pocketed core corporations who have not had to close shop because they could last through this. So and the list of giant bankruptcies this pandemic triggered would be an hour-long show. If I just listed all the companies maybe you've even heard of, that could be a half-hour show. But our economic recovery is going to take decades, not a V-curve, like they all say. It's going to take decades to rebuild, and there's a serious and measurable cost here, too. This is all part of this human life value $16 trillion I'm talking about. Here's another big one that's measurable. Poverty gains. We've made enormous gains in poverty. we built a middle class in America. And up to 2020... We've made enormous poverty gains and we've built a middle class in America. And up to 2020, we have now officially been set back 
decades. 15% more people are on Medicaid than were on this time a year and a half ago. Normally you'll see a one to two or 3% gain in Medicaid in bad times, not 15%. This is a very real cost to stack up five or 10 years of need all lumped into the past 18 months of federal treasure to support the vast social network way beyond Medicaid because there's food assistance with SNAP, there's housing assistance, there's rent freezes, there's welfare, just dole, just handing out cash. And there's dozens of safety nets that we haven't even heard of. And that's easier math too to calculate. Here's another one. Delayed and deferred tests and treatment for heart and cancer related have accelerated deaths at home. That's a cost. Beds simply can't be found in some parts of the South. There was a story yesterday, two stories yesterday, about 40 phone calls to hospitals couldn't find a bed for a heart patient. No one wants to go to a hospital today if you can get a bed anyway. The system is broken in regions with short staffing, period. There's a lost human life value there too. And a future cost with delayed care, especially in cancer and heart and mental health, that's almost incalculable. We've never seen anything like this. So, and let's talk, let's talk about mental health while we're on the subject. Abuse and domestic violence, addiction, all are related to mental health and it all adds to the cost for life lost to COVID. So I've laid out in this order, kids, small to medium business owners and some big companies too, the new wave of four, chronic care delayed, and mental health in America. That's just a few, there's a bunch more, but those are the big ones, okay? Now, America is 330 million of us, but open up the lens aperture to the world's 7.9 billion souls, and we have billions affected who have lost big time in treasure, freedom, health, mental and physical, and in more fragile economies than our resilient one, Millions are literally starving to death. It's a hidden tragedy we're gonna talk about with today's guest. And they're dying from preventable causes and thrown into disease and poverty from middle-class to poverty. We're talking millions, if not billions of souls, all because of badly considered policies and worse considered science that ignores best practices, that ignores data, that has, instead of crowdsourcing answers, they're single sourcing answers that proved to be move the dial. We know crowdsourcing moves the dial. That's called the Bayesian method. We've talked a lot about it. Poles and wonks clearly have gotten also drunk with power, which contributes to this. And they've dug their heels in on these dumb positions to look effective to us, not to be effective, to look effective because they weren't effective in saving life. And we're gonna prove it today. If you remember, if prime directive one was let's flatten the curve. Prime directive one somehow got in the trash sheet because prime directive number two, and we never talk about flattening the curve anymore, is let's eliminate the virus. What? What happened to prime directive one? Well, guess what? You can't do either of them because if you own pets, you really can't do those two. I learned reading this new book, our guest wrote, because Rover and Fido carry Corona. You can vax your entire family. You can vax Buddy and Rocky, your pet golden doodles, but they go to the super spreader party at the doggy park. And they're licking mouths and noses and butts. And oh my God, aerosols are flying everywhere. Dogs get the same virus too, the same way. Nobody's talking about this. Our guest will, because a few countries actually got their COVID response right. No, not just Sweden. There's countries way better than Sweden, way. So most of the health policy apparatchiks ignored the economic science that a US life is worth one to 4 million not 20 to $60 million that lockdowns have caused us. It's actually impossible to calculate accurately because there's so many unknowns, but every country is different. Maybe in Cambodia, for example, it's not a one to 4 million human life value. It's gonna be less than a wrongful death. In North Korea, it may be near zero because sadly it's leaders don't seem to value life at all. And they've been in a lockdown state for decades, losing people to starvation daily. Here's the point. These measurables, kid setbacks, entrepreneurial wealth loss, health delayed or setback, or meaningless premature deaths because of that, poverty's burden to a national treasury, all have a contribution to the cost for death way beyond human life value. Yes, every life is precious, that's a feeling, but that's not data. We're here to support data in today's talk. And a pandemic, pandemic response should be at least all about data, if not mostly about data. And it has not been in America, UK, Canada, the EU, and even Australia, where today's guest lives. We got this measurably way wrong, measurably. And weirdly, we all went along merrily down the path. If you look at Pew Research polls, three-fourths of us are very happy that we're doing what we're doing. 
completely asleep. Okay, back to data. If each death is costing us 20 to $60 million, not one to 4 million, would any business invest 20 to 60 bucks to save to one to four bucks? I have to ask the question twice because it's an important question. So that's granny you're talking about, Ron. That's your heart talking when you throw that at me, okay? We're not talking heart today, we're talking head, data. Emotion is another subject for another show. Let's separate the two, please, for just a half an hour. Okay, back to 20,000 feet. This virus targets mostly the elderly, and the elderly in a wrongful death lawsuit sadly is a lower value than a peak earner. The data from a PI lawyer, not Ron Barshop, okay? I'm not throwing my ideas out here. So the Spanish flu 102 years ago was really different from this pandemic because it took out 50 million, mostly peak earners, aged 20 to 40. That was that virus. This virus is different. My great-grandfather, Sam Barshop, died in the flu epidemic of 1919 and 1920. We lost him and the infant Dorothy, their baby, to that one. So my grandfather, Joe, had to drop out of school in eighth grade and support a family of five by himself. Now, that happens in the pandemic today, just a lot less statistically, because this is a pandemic of silver hairs, okay? So a different and, yes, lower human life value for this pandemic. Heartless, no, economic, science, data. Sorry to keep hammering you on this, but don't get soft on me now. You're almost there. Today's guest has been called a granny killer. In fact, every bad word you can imagine that they have in Australia, some you've never heard of, she's had death threats because she talks about the science of human life value. And it sounds heartless sometimes because math is heartless. But countries' reactions to the pandemic have three flavors, says today's guest, which have radically different costs per death because we're interested in the few that got this lockdown calculus right. What can we learn from Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, for example? She calls them minimalist or pragmatists in her book. They're in a club almost done by themselves with a few other countries maybe I've never heard of, but they lock down very lightly. And yes, Sweden's on the list too, but they lock down lightly. The deaths per million, which is a really clear way to understand how well they did over 18 months was in the tens. So I'm going to throw some numbers, which is hard to do and listening, but 34 died per million in Taiwan, 41 in Korea, South Korea, 120 in Japan. So in the tens, let's talk about the rest of the world because it's scary compared to 34, 41 and 120. In Canada, we had hundreds of deaths, 705 per million. UK, 1,932 deaths per million. US, about the same, 1,830. So 10 to 50 times the number of deaths that the three countries I mentioned earlier, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, that have light lockdowns versus our much more heavier, austere, shut down everything, including schools. English-speaking countries didn't do so hot, nor did EU, with stringent lockdowns. Why are our deaths per million way worse than those other three? Our guest is going to answer that today. Okay, so it's mostly attributable to bad policy, ignoring boring but reasonable science versus headline-grabbing sensationalized science and data. It's about feds living in their new power while quietly cheerleading the big businesses like pharma and big media that drove the scare narrative. And it's all about filling their corporate treasuries because, boy, did they do good. And that's all detailed in the book. And the crowd, we all went along gleefully singing a song, whistling a happy song as we mostly lost in every way possible while the bigs won especially in American healthcare, big systems, big pharma, big private equity firms did very, very well. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. A little bit of long bio, but it's worth it. Gigi Foster is an American educator living in Sydney, not an American in Paris, an American in Sydney. She has 14 years in Down Under. We can all be proud of her because she's done well. She's a professor of school of economics at the University of New South Wales. She was educated at Yale in ethics, politics, and economics, and she also got her PhD in the University of Maryland in economics, and she works in a super interesting, diverse set of fields that are perfect for this pandemic, including education, social influence of crowds, corruption, lab experiments, time use, behavioral economics, and Australian policy. So really interesting mix there. And you may not know Australia took a really sad turn this pandemic, with freedom and liberties almost disappearing and anti-state politics replacing those freedoms. That's another topic, another show. Her research contributions regularly inform public debates and appear in both 
specialized and cross-disciplinary outlets. And her teaching, featuring strategic innovation and integration with research, was awarded a 2017 Australian Award for University Teaching. So she got a citation for outstanding contributions to student learning. So she's a master teacher. And in 2019, she was named the Young Economist of the Year by the Economic Society of Australia. Not too shabby. And she has a national journalistic platform co-hosting The Economist, which is a nationally broadcast economics talk radio program and podcast now in its fifth season. And she, how I found her, is the co-author with two other partners of COVID and the Madness of Crowds. What happened? Why? And what to do next? Gigi Foster, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ron. It's a very kind introduction. Well, what did I miss, Gigi? I tried to cover the highlights of the book. What did I miss and what would you like to comment on before we get started? You did really well. The, the title of the book is slightly different, The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. Um, but it's funny because everybody seems to get the, the first part of the title wrong. I don't know why <laughs> when I did these interviews. Um, but look, you covered it. You covered very well the, the chapter that we have, which is chapter five on the tragedy that has been visited upon us by the policies that have been put in place, particularly by, as you say, the, the more crazed countries, we call them the COVID cult countries around the world that have really gone hard with these lockdowns and associated restrictions of freedoms. Um, I guess one of the things about the book that people seem to like when they read it that you didn't mention is that we try to make it very relatable to readers by telling individual stories through the eyes of what we see as the three main archetypal characters that have really played important roles during this period in, in getting the madness started and in keeping it going. So we start the book off by talking about our first archetypal character, Jane, who is basically just a standard citizen who is nervous and gets scared of COVID after having been exposed to so much media that was swirling around in, in late February and then early March. And, and sort of gradually starts to give in to that fear and to push her politicians to protect her from this new threat. And she doesn't look up the data for herself. She, she doesn't try to keep perspective herself and she ends up being manipulated by her own fear. And she's a big part of how we get into this problem in the first place. And indeed later, she is part of what keeps it going because she becomes basically a vigilante and someone, you know, the Karens who go around and scold people on the street for not wearing their masks or having a party or doing other normal human things. So she was a big part of what was going on. Um, and she still is here in Australia. There's plenty of Jane still hanging around all sorts of places. Uh, the second character is James and James is an opportunist. <clears throat> so he's, he's not a, a scaredy cat. He's, he likes to think he keeps his head in, in difficult times and what he starts off uh, doing in this in this crisis is wondering what what can I do in order to preserve my status and and not lose my seat so James is in government James is at the top of companies James is any place where there's an opportunity to potentially benefit from what's happening but he doesn't necessarily start out thinking he's going to exploit the, the world or his country or his, his region, uh, but he ends up basically being seduced by the opportunities that COVID prevent, presents to do that. So in government, he starts to impose these lockdown restrictions and other kinds of extreme measures and he gets rewarded for it. Here in Australia, our, our state of Western Australia um, gave to a landslide the, um, the the party that had basically put everybody into lockdown um, a, a re-election. And, and everyone looked at that, both sides of politics, and I thought, well, I guess it works. If you deliver a lockdown, people seem to think that you're great because you've, you've been seen to protect them from this virus. So that's the James in, in government. James in companies jumped on the bandwagon to be able to be seen to provide for what the government's were saying was needed. So that could be personal protective equipment or um, hand sanitizer or vaccines or whatever else while making a big buck. And so there was this very, very strong exploitative component that, that continues even today. Uh, many government contracts were handed out to all sorts of people who got really rich and are increasingly going to attempt to fade into the background as this madness fades out because otherwise uh, they are the ones really who should be um, brought to justice. My favorite character, though, is your third one. And I think if we had to do the math, I, I actually have some data for you. Pew Research does studies on James and Jane because that's about three out of four Americans that believe that everything they're reading, they're, they do question, but not much. And they just are going along because they want to get along. And, you know, uh, 
So three out of four American. Now, red and blue divides completely differently. If you're a Republican or you lean right, you tend to not believe the government. You tend to be this third character you're describing who I think is you and it's me. So let's talk yes. about the third character now. <laughs> yeah. So the third character is probably you and me and my co-authors. And, and I like to think maybe somewhere between 10 and 30% of the people in, in, in any given country. It'll vary by country, of course, but her name is Jasmine in the book. And she is essentially the skeptic. She's the doubter. She's the one who likes to think for herself. And she doesn't get swept along with big crowd obsessions the way that a lot of her neighbors do. And she, even before COVID, often found herself disagreeing with most of the world about stuff, about, about important things, um, religion and politics and science. And, and she just had her own view. And so when COVID started happening, started coming onto the radar in March, Jane looked at, uh, Jasmine looked at this uh, new threat and saw what everybody was doing and thought, well, this is not commensurate with the threat. These behaviors people are taking and the fear that I see, it's not commensurate. It's, it's disproportionate to the actual uh, virulence of this new bug and the, the actual threat it poses to our people. And in fact, we should be taking a very different policy response. So back in March 2020, I went onto my national radio program and said, we should not be locking down the whole society. We should be targeting our protection to people who are actually vulnerable to this virus. And that was, I think, Jasmine's position, generally speaking. Um, take practical action. Don't uh, overreact. And and we were expecting that this whole thing would blow over within a couple of months. I don't know about you, Ron, but I was definitely expecting that in, in March and April of last year. And I was just uh, horrified to see how long it continued after that. And and that was part of what made me and my other Jasmine co-authors decide we had to write this book because we could see that this was a phenomenon that was historical. It was it was foundational. It was just unignorable. Un, un we had to pen our view of what had happened. And we had to understand the continuation of the madness in a social scientific context. That's why we brought in this concept of crowds. And you mentioned this briefly in your intro, but crowds and the notion of going along with the herd, crowd psychology, it's something that social science really doesn't deal with much in, in our- in Oh, our I, I want to talk about that. That's the, that's the core of my question for you tonight. But yeah. let, me, let me reframe your book in a little different way than you did, because the way you describe your book is really very nice. You say, well, we, it's kind of like baking a cake, you know, Mr. Fritchers, uh, so let me get these names right. Fritchers. Uh, Paul, Paul Fritchers had the recipe you, Gigi, assembled the ingredients and Michael Baker proper, appropriately baked the cake. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the cake. That's a propose because um, I suggest this is not a baking of a cake. This is a giant crime scene of epic proportions. And the three people you just named are actually witnesses and accessories to the crime. And they're also the victim at the same time, which makes it a, the perfect crime. So mm. if you come with me, come along with me on this little journey and tell me if I'm on target here. I see Basically, this is the greatest crime in history, and it's not just a murder mystery of millions. It's an epic con job on billions and the theft of trillions. Does that make sense to you? Yep, I, I basically completely agree. Okay, so we're on the same point that this is an epic, massive, historic power grab and an epic, massive crime, potentially actually perpetrated by very nice, uh, honest people for the most part. But um, And the power grab is by the point of regulation. So let me reframe all the players in your book as... A crime scene, okay? Yep. We have three perps. The first perp is the obvious big winners. These are the big money cartel and big money mafia. I'm going to call them big money. What do you have to say about the big money who are giant winners in this game? Oh, look, this is from an economist's perspective. One of the, the most obvious losses is that big business has crowded out little business during this period and the concentration in various industries that was already increasing in a, in, a, in a bad and an alarming way before COVID has gotten that much worse. So everyone now is dependent on Amazon, for example, and YouTube and these other you know big companies that, I mean, are just, they're, they're stratospherically large compared to what we've seen in history and they crowd out the little guy partly by using COVID as an excuse. You know, little, little mom and pop bakeries and, and restaurants and whatnot 
have a lot harder time coping with all of the COVID restrictions and the passes and the, you know, check your this and that, and do you have a mask and all that sort of stuff, then, you know, a larger chain does because the larger chain just has more of a profit margin, right? They, they just are able to uh, withstand and get through difficult periods. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of bankruptcies. And of course, as an economist, you know that increased uh, concentration, which means decreased competition, is bad for human welfare. It's bad for the consumer. When you don't have choice, you can't run away. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you, you actually detail in one chapter the PL effect on big social media and on big healthcare. And it's amazing. The numbers are just in the hundreds of billions. And in primary care, what we've seen is um, the normal amount of primary care businesses that are independent that are purchased in a normal time is about one fourth to one fifth of what it's been this past 18 months because the hospitals got a basically free Marshall Plan of 175 billion, which is more than the actual Marshall Plan that got us world peace after World War II to buy practices. And if you look at their balance sheets, they all had basically the equal amount of money that they got in the Marshall Plan to save their bacon in strategic reserves. So they never needed the money. And we now six quarters later that they never need the money. So. That, that consolidation you're talking about has happened in healthcare, and I think my listeners tired of hearing about it because I talk about it too much, but so that's perp one is big business, okay? We're going to call it big money cartel. The second perp that's a little less obvious, you've already hinted at it, is social media and big media. And big media, uh, again, in another chart in your book, is in very few hands. It's highly concentrated in a very few hands, and it looks like big media supported big money cartel, and they did it with a big megaphone. So let's call the second perp, would you agree, big media or big megaphone? Yeah, for sure. And and I would say not just big, but also, again, uh, monocultural. There is one narrative that gets spun. And, and of course, we're seeing this in even yesterday. Somebody sent me uh, an image of his comment or his attempt to put a comment into Facebook about my book. And it got censored because apparently oh. that's not according to the community standards. Yeah. So that's what I've can been, happen. I've been I've been yep. punished on LinkedIn. My my viewership is one fifth of what it was before I started talking about this stuff. Yep, okay, there so you go. I'm I'm burned. Um, less obvious power is the power hunger of the polls and their appointed regulators. So they're making the rules, and so they're the big referee as well as the rule maker, and they control OIG and FBI, so they can direct investigations of evil evildoers. So they're not only you know regulators, but they're also cops. So I call this the cops and the drivers of the getaway car because they're definitely an accessory to the crime and they want to join the ranks of the big money cartel because they can get directorships and consulting gigs and lobby jobs. So they want to high five on the way up the ladder, you know, the lobbyists going out down the ladder um, with uh, access because they did a good job for the big money guys. Yeah, look, for sure. Everybody who had an opportunity here uh, would would want to be closer to power, closer to money. And it's just it's just what people want. Right. And of course, as an economist, I have to admit this as much as I don't think money is what uh, you know is the most important thing in the world. Love is the most important thing. But money is very, very motivating for people. And so is power. So, yes, if you are in a position to be seen as a regulator, be seen as someone who can be part of the solution by the, uh, you know, unwitting populations, then it's very, very difficult to resist that. So the, sadly, in this story, there's no Thanos. There's no single guy or gal who's the master manipulator or master villain. It's more like a mafia or cartel run by mostly decent people who are really beholden to their shareholder and to their boards, but they're definitely <laughs> profiting in a panic for sure, especially in healthcare. And now mm -hmm. we got the fourth member of this crime scene, and that is Jane, James, and Jasmine, who are not only victims, but they're witnesses, firsthand witnesses, and they're an accessory to the crime. Now for my big question, why? Why are the crowds, the great COVID panic, um, con, you know, why are they part of this crime? Why don't they see with clarity and why aren't they awake to what has actually happened to all of us? Yeah, so this is what's been the most interesting part of this whole period for me, Ron, is, is witnessing the crowd dynamic. It's not something that I've seen in my, in my lifetime most social scientists um, living today won't have seen it, certainly not this, this seriously. And really only if you're a student of history um, would you even have been exposed to the reality of, of the power of a crowd. You know, when, when I don't know if, if you uh, studied the Second World War much in high school, but I took history and, and I remember seeing videos of some of the Nazi rallies. 
and thinking to myself, well, those people are nuts. You know, they're just, they're just crazy. Like we clearly would never be like that today. Look at what they're doing there. They're bonding together in these great huge fields Right, uh, and this is what the Nazis would do. They would, they had this whole recipe for getting people revved up and and excited, and then willing to go right along with whatever the speaker, you know, the the, the Führer, whoever it was, was going to say. And it could be, oh, the Jewish person in your in the house next door is, you know, going to kill your kids or whatever, and they would go right along with it immediately. So I. I was watching evidence of this and seeing how people behaved and it was absolutely, I mean, it makes your hair stand on end. And you think to yourself, at least I did when I was in high school, I thought, well, thank goodness we're not like that anymore. Thank goodness we've, as a, as a people, as a species, we've gotten beyond that. You know, we've learned our lesson, like, don't do that again. And yet here we are. And it is the same dynamic. And, and what happens in a crowd is basically everybody who, who becomes a member has been fixated on a particular obsession and they they all kind of coalesce together on that obsession and of course it started to be the obsession of covid in march and there was such fear around that 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 fear provided essentially a glue almost like a like a magnetic force of the people who were so scared of covid to come together and and start to form this this embryonic crowd which then just gathered steam and gathered steam and it's not a normal social group like a like a nation state or a family or a company because in those kinds of groups you do have a common purpose a common mission but it's not the case that everybody every single member is focused obsessively on one thing for a, you know a long period of time and that's the that is the defining feature of a crowd these people these members of the crowd, so the Janes, were just fixated and everything else that mattered in normal times became just much, much, much less important. It just didn't, didn't matter. And the, the danger of a crowd is that people, individuals, will lose their own sense of morality, their own responsibility for constructing their own truths goes completely out the window and they give over those responsibilities to the crowd and to the person who is seen to be leading the crowd. And that's I want where to talk the, about uh, how science has taken a vacation this last yeah. 18 months, because that's another important thing you bring up. And you actually outline the rolling snowball effect of how that happened. Before we do that, I want to talk about the hidden tragedy that you uncovered with your ingredients specialty. And I'm just going to reel off a few ingredients that most really, you know, loving, caring people don't know about, which are the universal cost, the hidden tragedy um, to country programs. So, for example, vaccines went to a, a screeching halt. So we had we have no mumps and measles and diphtheria and cholera shots that have stopped, and this result results in at least uh, two hundred and three to four hundred fifteen thousand deaths directly attributable to that. Um, we have a billion, one point six billion kids out of school. We have three million unsafe people walking around with a, getting three million un unsafe abortions. We have seven million more unintended consequences presidencies and uh, so that's to, and add to that two million a quarter because we don't have uh, normal health care that we have um the planting we've lost two planting seasons now and the supply chain is devastated so food inequity looks like 83 to 132 million people are now in food scarcity that weren't before 100 million people that's incredible extreme poverty where which is a dollar 90 a day is up 70 million people mostly in africa 57 million, I'm sorry, 57,000 maternal deaths because they didn't have adequate health care. As the list goes on, you have a, you have a 1.16 million children who um, have had to step back from their schooling. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it just goes on and on. That was a great assembled list that nobody really talks about. It's the hidden cost, the hidden tragedy. I mean, it's not hidden to some of us, Ron. I mean, <laughs> all of these things are exactly what, what was going through my head back in March as potential dangers. If we push pause on the global economy, that's what will happen because our, our global world today, I mean, we are interconnected like never before or pre-COVID we were. And that interconnectivity gives us the opportunity to deliver those, those services that keep people having better lives and longer lives and, and uh, you know more robust and happy lives. 
And that includes not dying in childbirth. It includes having the vaccinations early for MMR and polio and all the other things. It includes having those supply chains work so that we can feed people. We were making great progress against um, inequality in, in you know, particularly places like India, huge countries that you know have been set back probably a decade in our in our progress against poverty. So you know, I know when you're when you introduced us, you were talking about the heartlessness of talking uh, dollars when we think about lives saved, but really, I mean, we, we live in a world of scarcity. So it's not just about putting a dollar value on somebody's life. It's about saying we only have a limited amount of resource to go around. How do we want to use it to best produce, to produce the most human thriving? And that includes the black and brown people overseas who are now, because of our choices in developed economies, suffering and dying. And they will be for another decade because of what we have done. So, I mean, I, I see that as one of the most, most colossal areas of damage that indeed just isn't talked about in developed countries. I don't, I don't remember the last time on an Australian program that I heard anything about you know, the developing world. Whereas pre-COVID, all sorts of people would always bleat on about how, oh, we needed to give more to the people in Africa and stuff like that. But that just has just gone completely silent. And that's one of the characteristics, again, of a crowd. Everything else that used to matter just becomes basically unimportant in comparison to the obsession. I want to talk about a peripheral issue you don't really directly deal with in your book, but it definitely is a disinformation campaign. And that is HIV is a cocktail. Interferon alone will not answer for Magic Johnson to get rid of his HIV. But it, when you one, two, three punch it with a cocktail, that makes interferon sing. And it's a three drug, co drug cocktail that has literally bombed the virus to oblivion for him and millions of people with HIV. Um, ivermectin as a cocktail apparently works to prevent and lessen and yes, eliminate the virus with Zithromax and certain inhaled common asthma steroids. Yet it's attacked as a mono solution by the FDA, by the CDC, by the Euro European equivalent of the same thing. And screw that drug, it's a horse dewormer, leave it alone, it's no good. But in a cocktail, it's a genius solution. So in cancer therapy, we have 26,000 approved FDA drugs and brilliant people are getting together and saying, what can we do to one, two, three punch various types of cancer that are out there? And that we're having the same success in cancer the next 20 years that we had the last 40 years in heart disease. It's just getting hammered by cocktails. So here's my question. If we're gonna crowdsource solutions for cancer cocktails and we've crowdsourced solutions for HIV with a cocktail, and if every flu shot is basically a cocktail of COVID-17 and COVID-16 and COVID-15 and everything else that is going to hurt us, why is interferon being attacked so, I mean, literally virulently as a, not a solution for people when it clearly is? Yeah. So you're saying about ivermectin, right? Not interferon. <clears throat> Did I say infermectin? I meant say ivermectin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so ivermectin is a is a really classic uh, poster child for um, basically a, a clue that things are not right <laughs> at the time at the moment in how we are coping and and strategizing in our fight against COVID. I don't know if you know, but the Therapeutic, Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia, the TGA, uh, just earlier this week banned the off label use of ivermectin specifically for COVID. Um, and, you know, you, you look at that and you think, well, what on earth is happening? As you say, si what happened to science? What happened to looking at evidence? Because there are very promising trials of ivermectin in, in combination with other things like zinc and also just by itself. And it's, it's certainly at least worthy of a conversation. And yet we see so much you know, effort put towards vaccination as the solution and nothing really, I mean, if anything, a negative attitude towards ivermectin. And this is, again, about, I hate to say it, money. It's, ivermectin is, you know, cheap to produce. It's incredibly safe. And even the very producer of ivermectin itself was trying to undersell how useful it might be against COVID because it wanted to make money off the vaccines. They're much, much more profitable. So, you know, don't underestimate the, the power, again, of money and profit to drive the decision-making and the optics that the big pharmaceutical companies will sell to the politicians and they will then on sell to the population, which don't forget, still wants to be protected against COVID. And they know what a vaccine is, 
you know, they took vaccines when they were kids and stuff and they gave it to their own children. So they trust the word vaccine so they can be sold the COVID vaccines much more easily than, oh, here's this complicated formula of stuff. And, you know, it seems a bit messy. People just, you know, it's, it's not as good of a sales pitch and it doesn't make nearly the money. I want to do a lightning round about how science has taken a vacation. Okay. Because this is yeah. an important part of the story, I think. Okay. So the first part you detail in your book is, at the same time, the Imperial College came out with their ridiculous numbers that had a 3% infection rate, which is really today we know it's 0.2 of 1%. It's not even 1%. That 3% infection rate versus the Oxford team that got it a lot closer with 0.14. Again, 0.2 is the answer. So the Oxford team, which comes from a better school, got hammered because it was a boring headline and the Imperial College was the operative number that everybody started not only headlining but using in their own studies explain that to us yeah exactly so this is and as a scientist i can tell you this is how it works generally but this is a, a horrible example so if you happen to be the team that gets your favored number you know the number from your study into the journal early on and if you have a, a plausible defense of why it's it is what it is you can essentially start up the the cottage industry of studies about that phenomenon and every subsequent study that gets submitted to journals for publication will be reviewed by the people who who basically did research in that similar area and so you can be the reviewer of the next guy's paper and the next guy reviews the next guy's and maybe you review you know three or four generations uh, okay so you don't want to look bad next to the guy who did you don't want to you don't want to disagree with your own opinion is what you're saying exactly you have a you have a career incentive to accept the the papers the later papers that basically say that you were right and so this is how a bad, bad idea grows legs and sticks for a long time wow okay and then the lancet which used to be maybe one of the four or five most important journals you're calling for it to be to be a de-journaled because the science has been so bad in the lancet over and over again they've actually had to retract studies yeah. so then you have formal you know formal institutions like the lancet getting co-opted and not walking things back yep that's right exactly and and that's just you know again the co-optation and the, the the capture of editorial teams and the the reviewers being in a in a crowd and part of the crowd that had an incentive to keep the madness and the the silliness going this happened in economics as well i've been very ashamed of my profession over here in australia but around the world because we've we've basically acted on mass like apologists for what has happened rather than pushing back. And I mean, I've, I've provided a draft cost benefit analysis, but uh, you know, of, of lockdown policies here for one of our states, but there, there's basically nothing else um, you know, being contributed that is sensible and sane. And it's all been very, very apologetic or just on something completely different as if somehow COVID policy isn't the, you know, the, the greatest policy failure of our time and that we shouldn't be even having an opinion about it. I mean, that's nuts as well. Okay, now we got a very few epidemiologists, but of the thousands of epidemiologists, they start piling on one dimensional solutions that say lockdown, and they're completely ignoring the cost, the 24 million, for example, per lost person. They're ignoring the cost of lockdown to entrepreneurs, to the poor, to children, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a 1D chess versus a 3D chess epidemiology report that they're giving to the government officials. Yeah. Now we have exactly that problem here as well. And I mean, in some sense, you can't blame them. I mean, I, I don't know what they learn in epidemiological school, but I doubt that they learn about business failure or the interdependence of, of economies or the, the people's needs for social interaction. Um, they are focused on the thing they were trained to focus on, but this is the danger of not including multiple perspectives in your decision-making team when you're facing a crisis. And that's been a, one of the greatest uh, you know, mistakes of this period. Uh, and I'm hoping that when we build back here in Australia and other places, we will recognize that that preservation of diversity of thought is so, so important. And we have to build our institutions in a way that respects that diversity and brings it to bear on, on future crises, because otherwise we will end up just as vulnerable to becoming really stupid really fast, which is what happened here in Australia and many other countries in the world. And now the fourth stage is once science and medicine starts um, getting pushback, they start demanding 100% certainty about the cost versus benefit of making a claim, but then they won't defend theirs with a, at 100%. So they're putting you to an impossible standard. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting clue as well about the fact that, you know, something's rotten in Denmark, and I don't just mean Denmark, the world really, is that the burden of proof has shifted. So when dracon draconian policies like lockdowns were being introduced, 
in normal times, you'd expect that the person proposing them would have to defend them on the basis that they were worth it. The cost benefit analysis you know, yielded a, a net benefit from those policies. But actually what happened is that people who were resisting them, like myself and a few other people, um, had were, were expected to argue that they were not a good idea to put to prove to people this this is really not a good idea. Now that's a shifting of the normal board burden of proof, um, and that should again clue you in that there's there's you know normal science and normal uh, processing of decision making inputs and and scenarios and options has just flown out the window during this period with the crowd dynamic and the fear and the big money and all the other bits and pieces of the of the crime scene that you've been pointing out. Okay, now the fifth stage is when the government decides to make a move. Now they got to do something. They got to look like they're doing something. So China was had the first mover advantage. Of course, they you know started in Wuhan. So the first mover makes some lockdown moves, hides information, provides massive disinformation, shuts people down, imprisons people. They were they famously, um, I don't know if we can say they killed the first doctor that that brought it up, but they definitely did not help his health and. Every other government started following suit in that same model. In fact, the Japanese minister in your book calls the World Health Organization, who they co-opted, the Chinese Health Ministry. I'm sorry, the Chinese Health Organization, because they were so owned by essentially Chinese influence. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, I mean, I think this was really uh, a case where the West initially thought that the same um, strategy would never sell. They looked at China and they thought, you know, there's no way that we can get our, our democratic Western populations to do this. But then they saw how fearful those populations were and they needed, the politicians needed to be seen to be delivering protection. And it so much was about the optics in those early days. And they thought, well, you know, well, let's just, maybe we'll try it, whatever. And there was a lot of back and forth. And we document this a bit in the book where, for example, Brett Sutton, who is uh, the chief health officer in Victoria, initially said, well, we're definitely not gonna close schools. And then a week later said, well, we're closing schools. <laughs> so there was a lot of flip-flopping. Same thing on mask mandates. The politicians were basically experimenting. They were trying out, they were sort of, you know, pushing to test to see where the, the value would be seen to lie. And it turned out that lockdowns, just like China, seemed like the thing that the, the populations would accept. And so then it just the rest of the world followed suit like dominoes. Okay, and then part of that is redefining words. So the Great Britain uh, crime that they admitted to and apologized for later, the scientists, is they redefined the word case, they redefined the word infection, they redefined the word COVID death so that the math would play to their narrative. Yeah. Yeah, and this is actually, again, a feature of normal science, unfortunately, is that there are often words used in the jargon of scientific disciplines that uh, are not used in the same way in, in layperson terminology. So when you hear case fatality rate, for example, you say, oh, case fatality rate 3%, to the guy on the street, that says, well, if I get this disease, then I've got a 3% chance of dying, right? That's what the natural brain of, of Joe Bloggs is going to think. But that's not true. <laughs> um, and, and the scientists who initially were publishing these, these papers with those kinds of you know, headlines and numbers, they knew that that's not really the right interpretation, but they did not push back against that interpretation. And in that they failed their responsibility, they abrogated their responsibility and their duty of care to the people they report to and the societies that they serve. Okay, the next stage, there's only two more of these folks, and then we're gonna wind the show up, it's a long show, is do something. If you're a public official, you have to coax some action out of your people and pretend it's going to have some kind of evidence that you that it works whether it has evidence or not so again it's a complete back turning on science in this case lockdowns um what's that all about yeah so this is the politician syllogism i don't know if your audience members know the wonderful bbc television series yes minister and yes prime minister but it comes up there and the the syllogism for the politician is well, we have to be seen to do something. So they're feeling pressure from the population to act, right? Well, uh, what can we do? Uh, well, there's something, let's do that. So there's no tether between the action itself and the presumed problem. It's simply about looking like you are doing something to solve the problem. And there's, there's very much of a religiosity in this. This notion of, well, we'll make this sacrifice, we'll, we'll throw lots of money at it, we'll close the schools, we'll, we'll make you wear masks, we'll make sacrifices that are painful, 
but you know, it will, will get rewarded in the end. This is a religious type of story that's going on in the minds of the population um, and even probably some of the politicians who started to buy into it. So it, it really is something that is very deep in us. And I, maybe one of the reasons why people have been so willing to go along with this is because they were so scared, just like the fear of, of you know, the, the South Americans that the sun wouldn't come up in the morning early, you know, many, many centuries ago. And so they sacrificed our own children in the hope that that would placate the gods and they would see the sun rise the next morning. In the same way, have we seen these sacrifices being made on the altar of saving lives to COVID when in fact, probably our policy choices have had very little to do with what's actually happened in terms of the virus trajectory. And really it's been much more about geography, demography, um, you know, biology and, and the, the general state of the health system and, and the population density in various different countries. Um, the last two are groupthink. Um, and this is again where the Pew Research comes in that people largely think we're doing the right thing here, even though we have deaths per million of 10 to 50 times that of the three countries I mentioned, Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. And groupthink is where macroeconomists all got together and they completely ignored that the harm is gonna be worse than the solution with the lockdowns. They just literally glossed over it. Yeah, no, exactly. And they only look at one side. I see this as well here now in the argumentation, not just by macroeconomists, but many scientists, they just don't understand the, the, the possibility that maybe the, you know, the cure could be worse than the disease, essentially, that there is a huge cost to the policy actions we've taken. And, it, and, and the result that we should be looking for is not just a narrow result about COVID deaths and suffering. It is the total holistic result about human well-being and human thriving. And when you lose sight of that, it's very, very dangerous. And you can, you know, you forget that the trade-offs that you're making inevitably with every single policy choice. Okay, and finally, the mantra. You got to have a mantra. You got to have a mission. You got to have a, uh, you know, bring our boys back. This mantra has flattened the curve and they didn't work so well. So they changed the mantra. What is that all about? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that was basically the initial the initial selling point when, uh, again, the politicians were pressing to test. Uh, OK, we'll flatten the curve. That sounds reasonable. We'll let the health system prepare and then we'll eventually, you know, open up and, and we'll just have to take this wave. Um, but I guess, I, I, you know, I think basically the, the politicians thought, well, particularly here in Australia, we can kind of keep the virus at bay if we just keep those borders closed. Do we really need to open the borders? People are still really scared. If I open those borders, then I might lose my seat at the next election. Um, that's not cool. I think I'll just keep them closed a little longer. So it's, it's a bit of the slippery slope phenomenon. Once you start making the argument that you can restrict freedoms uh, and, and be safe, it's very seductive to keep restricting them even more and, and selling the idea that you're keeping people safe. The, the flatten the curve and then eliminate the virus. I mean, the whole there's a, always a different a different story. Now it's the vaccine hero story. Um, I don't know if uh, your audience is artistic at all, but my son is writing a musical about this whole period. And one of his songs is called Flatten the Curve. Um, and it's all about the, the sales pitch that was initially uh, you know, discovered to work uh, and then just you know, transition to the next and the next and the next package. So uh, I just I just hope people can wake up before you know a really even more dangerous package is sold to them. This is a crime scene, folks. There are perpetrators that are well-intentioned folks, but there's a murder mystery here that's been solved today. There's a con job that's been solved here today. There's a giant heist that's been solved here today. And if you get the great COVID panic, what happened, why, and what to do next, you'll have a roadmap for what to do next. So Gigi, I God, I mean, there's just so much more to talk about, but. I promised you a half hour and you deliver me double. So I'm, thank you so much for your time and for your paying attention to this issue from a real interesting perspective that most of us don't think about. It's my pleasure, Ron. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.